Hello and welcome back to There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. I'm your host, TK, a teacher and pop culture enthusiast. In this episode, that makes them us. I'm joined by return guest Daniel to dig into the big ideas of Eternals. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow me at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also support the podcast by purchasing There Was an Idea merchandise. The link is in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Today, I am once again joined by an MCU podcaster's best friend, Daniel. When he's not guesting on this podcast or on MCU Need to Know, he's teaching and thinking and sometimes sending me really thought-provoking articles. Daniel, welcome back. Thank you, TK. It's wonderful to be back on your podcast and ready to talk about our subject matter today. I've been so excited for this episode, so excited to talk Eternals with you, even though we've kind of been talking Eternals for a while now, certainly oh, over yeah. message, we've been sharing articles and, and different ideas related to the movie. So it feels like a long time coming. In fact, when we last heard from you on the podcast, you and I were discussing what was coming soon to the MCU as of October 2022. And shortly thereafter, we dug into the cerebral side of the MCU. And listeners should definitely check out the, quote, snooty academic episode, if you haven't already, because Daniel and I counted down our five favorite MCU films that specifically appeal to that lens. And so it feels fitting that today we're here to dig into Eternals, a film that we were anticipating at that time, and perhaps is the most snooty academic of them all? <laughs> I was going to say, if your uh, guests did not enjoy that other episode, they might not enjoy this one either, because <laughs> um, it, it, this movie definitely goes places. It definitely goes places. I'm with you there. And I never usually talk numbers on the podcast or about the podcast, but that episode did some numbers. So that's promising. So I'm hoping that people are here are here for the snooty academic side. Well, that's an ego boost. Thank you. Um, <laughs> or at least they're I, I here for say, you, Daniel. That's true. Yeah. I, I will say that um in, in as as a as a kind of back backwards apology that I, I think even before the movie came out, I was angling to be your guest on this retrospective. So thank you for honoring my request you were, and, and, and letting me, letting me do this. You were mostly subtle about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a no brainer because you and I had talked about, again, these more cerebral aspects of certain, certain parts of the MCU that really appealed to us. And I knew about your background in theology, and we talked about how this film relates to mythology, and we were both really excited about it. And in fact, when we had that conversation in October about what was coming soon, here's a couple of things that you said. I went back today and noted it. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> you said, I think Eternals is going to be big. You also said the phrase, the Eternals is like what? <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> you, you predicted it's not going to just be another superhero story. And you also questioned, why are they making this? <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> you channeled your Yelena there. It's so weird. Yeah. So, so weird. How do you think you did at forecasting the weather for Eternals, Daniel? I, um, I mean, st I think I still wondered um, after the first watch, why did they make this? Um, but then I proceeded to watch a bunch of other things that have come out recently like peacemaker um oh. and and ask that question 
why did they make this? And then go on to enjoy it immensely. So I, I think I'm over that question. And I think I've, I've kind of figured out a, an answer to that. But another thing, and I don't know if I said it on your podcast or somewhere else I've said to people, but I felt like I felt like I felt about Eternals, what I felt about Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. like what the heck, what is this? Oh, this could be awful. And um, I can certainly say it was not awful. And it definitely has this Guardians feel. It's cosmic. And it's also just completely in a different realm um, as far as, um, you know, what what you get and and uh, what it looks like. Um, I mean, it certainly has all the features of an MCU film, but from a, from a, a, a lens that we, quite frankly, have never seen before. So um, I would say give me a, a B minus. <laughs> I think that I can be a bit more generous than that. I think I think your predictions, your forecast there was uh, was pretty accurate. I, I think why are they making this is the type of thought provoking question that Eternals wants us to ask. So I think yeah. you you nailed it there. I've I've actually well I've I've actually only seen it um, like for real sit down two times, but I have clipped it a bunch and. Um, and read a lot and thought a lot, but um, yeah. yeah, I've only only saw it once in the theater, and I only saw it one time on Disney Plus. And normally, I'd watch a movie more than that, but after my second watch, I really it, it wasn't that hard to grasp the, the mood. Like it, I was kind of surprised at how how stru- the the structure just was like, oh, this is this is how it flows, mm-hmm. and so I didn't need that kind of multiple rewatches. Um, and quite frankly, I didn't have time. Um, but also I think the only, the only place where I feel like I wish I could have watched a few more times is a movie like this really it's beautiful yeah, and it's beautiful in a way that I don't think we've seen so much in, in a Marvel movie. And it, it just, it beckons me to want to watch it and just sit with it and just appreciate it. Which is different than other other the other ways I've um, consumed and thought about and talked about these movies. You know, I've always like, oh, let's think about it. What's this thing? You know, question and and this, I just kind of want to sit with it. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and you and listeners know that with my movie pass, I, I think that at this <laughs> point I should get a sponsorship from AMC. I don't know, just saying. But anyway, how many <laughs> times have you seen it, TK? <laughs> I went four times in the theater. And that was one more than I think I would have gone because I, I always go opening night at my, by myself. And then I went with my parents, which was, is also a tradition. I also went with two friends uh, and also former guests on the podcast. We went together. And there was one time in between there that I did an extra viewing on my own. And that extra viewing on my own, I think, was critical because of what you're saying. It was the just let it wash over me and sit there and stare mm-hmm. at this beautiful IMAX screen and just appreciate the aesthetics of this. And since then, I've also watched it at home twice. And then, like you, I've also rewatched clips and read things and specifically in preparation for the podcast. But even watching it at home, you know, I I have a decent sized screen upstairs in the movie room. But even watching it at home on on that screen compared with an IMAX screen, it's not big at all. It's It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, Mm, though. And I I completely agree with everything you're saying that there's something to rewatching a film like Winter Soldier or 
in my case, Black Widow, that it, it's a ton of fun and, and the action scenes. And I like to spend time with those characters because I like their worlds and I like spending time with them. And Eternals, I think, is also really rewatchable for me, but it feels a little bit of a different type of rewatch. It's a, a somber world in, in, in a way. And I think we'll talk more about that too. But my question yeah. for you, with some time in between, going from one watch in the theater to another watch at home and then spending mm -hmm. some time thinking and reading, has your impression of it from that first watch changed very much? Um, I would say no. And uh, I would say it's it's my appreciation for it has deepened. My, my initial feelings about it have been uh, confirmed. But, um, and that includes both my likes and dislikes. I've definitely, I've read a lot and thought a lot, but I feel like nothing, nothing that I've read or thought was really kind of mind blowing to alter my, my perception or my, my interpretation of it. Um, there are a couple things that I've grown to appreciate more that I think you'll, you'll like to hear. And then, <laughs> um, and then, um, I, I don't, the one thing that I don't think I appreciated enough uh, the first time was just how beautiful this movie is. Yeah. And it took, it took me just reading about the director's um, process and what she likes to focus on and how she likes to do things. And then me intentionally paying attention to that while I was watching the movie, um, which is difficult because there are these times it's almost, it was a little, um, it was a little wild forcing myself to like pay attention to the characters when I'm trying, when I'm taking in this beautiful, this beautiful scene sure. and letting normally when you watch a movie, especially Marvel movies, you're paying attention to the characters right. and what they're doing and what they're saying. And this, you need to take it all in, in order to appreciate the fullness of what, what Chloe Zhao is doing. And so, um, that was, that was, um, I'm not used to that in a, in a, in a film. Um, and maybe that's kind of the balance she's striking. You need a lot of dialogue with a movie like this, mm -hmm. um, with her, with her, her aesthetic, whereas something like Dune, he just took all the dialogue out, you know, for better, for worse. And, and you just experience it. Yeah. Great point. And I know with some of her other movies, it's, it's much more just ambiance and aesthetic that you're kind of experiencing. So, um, I would say that was the, the biggest change for me. Yeah. What about you? Well, my worst take of all my recording history relates to Eternals. It's it's interesting having the podcast because sometimes <laughs> you go back and you and you revisit older episodes and you think about how sometimes your your opinions do change and grow. That's not flip-flopping on, you know, my opinion on Iron Man 2 or whatever. It's just like sometimes my opinions change and grow and sometimes you spend more time with characters and your impressions of them change, your relationship to them changes. But my worst take of all time is on my first Impressions Eternal episode, where I believe I said something to the effect of the score was fine <laughs> or like <laughs> something like that. I think I spoke to enjoying the visuals and, and thinking that the sound design was was fine. I was very wrong with, with each subsequent rewatch. And I, I actually corrected this a little bit on, so I, I did first impressions Eternals, and then I did a ranking the Eternals second. episode, second, third, fourth impressions. Yeah. And I did correct myself a bit there and said how on subsequent rewatches, I felt the score as, as being more of, being more part of the experience for me and really appreciating mm -hmm. it. And more and more every time, it, it's an amazing score. So I, uh, <laughs> I have to, uh, I have to say that that's something 
that has changed with my with my multiple rewatches. And I'll agree with you too. I, I don't think my impressions of what this movie means or the big ideas here have changed at all since first watch, but I have just enjoyed spending more time with the characters and really immersing in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too, me too. I think that it's, uh, in terms of the realm of ideas, which I know we'll get to, it's one, It's very consistent and kind of direct. And uh, I don't have a lot of, um, it's, not the, it's not ambiguity isn't the right word, it's just um, I have more clarity on this than, than I do on other, you know, like I love, you know, that I love Loki, Mm -hmm. but the more I think about it, the more, the more that the, the, the kind of themes, not, it's not that they unravel. It's just, they, they, they run up it against the narrative. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, I feel like it's, it's, um, it's a more um, coherent through line uh, in terms of what, what I'm taking from it. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned before that, you know, your general likes and dislikes have roughly remained the same since you saw the Mm -hmm. film in November in general terms, because we're going to get into more detail in a little bit. But general terms, what are the things that you like about this movie? I think that the um, the under the underlying theme, which I don't want to bring that up yet, but um, just what I was saying about its consistency and just the message it's sending, I am receiving and and uh, that's that hasn't changed. it's it's absolutely beautiful, and it's uh, it's also a kind of crazy wild um, entry into the MCU yeah. that I think is so risky. But of why not? You know, because they can, and and um, and so I thought I think all of that um, kind of gathers together my 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 general likes: beautiful, um, exciting in a fresh way. And um, a clear, a clear message that just it it plays my heartstrings on all levels. And and if you've heard me talk before, I bring up I bring up religion and theology. Mm-hmm. That is my subject matter, uh, my discipline, my life. And this movie is playing plays those strings pretty emphatically. So I, oh, yeah. I have nothing to complain about. What about on that dislike side? I know that you and I both feel overwhelmingly positive about this film, but of course there's always going to be things that didn't necessarily work as well as we would want them to. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's actually very specific things that make me, um, well, there's two, two ways that come out of this and it, it, it generally has to do with, um, with story development. Um, I wish I had seen more of certain characters. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish that, um, I feel like the, 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 the whole deviance aspect of the story was underutilized. So those, those are my, my, my biggest dislikes. Um, but other, other than that, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's a perfect movie, but I just, um, it's, 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 um, one of, one of the articles that, you know, we'll reference later refers to this as possibly one of Marvel's um, first cult classics. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel that that kind of sentiment when I think about this movie that that like when you think about like cult classics like Donnie Darko or mm-hmm. or, or um, what are some of the other ones that this article mentions, you know, Starship Troopers, which I, I don't know. Is that a cult classic? But Rocky Horror <laughs> Picture Show, you know, the, these movies that are are so flawed in so many weird ways. Like you go back and watch Donnie Darko and you really think about it, you know, um, it's like, what, you know, but it's just like so crazy and bizarre. And, and 
all the adults in the room are like, oh, they roll their eyes, you know, and then and then the, the pragmatists are like, that doesn't make any sense. And then there's me and, you know, other people just like, this is so cool, crazy, bizarre. I I don't care if there are problems with this movie. You know, it's 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 speaking my language. Maybe it's a little bit similar to how I feel about my personal cult classic Batman Forever. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not actually comparing these two movies. <laughs> I'll just let that hang up. <laughs> You're entitled to your opinions. No, I'm DK. not comparing you these are movies. Entitled to your opinions. It's just, it's interesting. Ch- Chase Meridian. <laughs> I love, love Chase Meridian. Come on. Very form oh, of experience. Man. But I, mean, I also, word. <laughs> I think that I have made it a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a thing now. You know what? It doesn't work if I'm trying to do it, but I have found that Batman Forever finds its way into way more episodes of this podcast than it really should. (laughs) (laughs) And this led uh, Jude the other day sent me a text that just said, Batman Forever holds up. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what's funny about it, Jude, if you're listening, I never actually followed up to hear more about what prompted that. I think he was listening to my most recent episode with Chris about Spider-Man. Anyway, not to get too sidetracked there, and I'm not actually... (laughs) comparing these films but i hear what you're saying about sometimes a movie sometimes a movie captures the emotion and and imagination of an audience in a particular way and and kind of takes on a life of its own so in that coming soon discussion i had said that my number two most anticipated moment coming up before the end of 2022 was figuring out who the heck the eternals really are and finding my new favorite characters in an ensemble cast and falling in love with a new world. And I would say that I was right in being excited about that. I genuinely enjoyed figuring out who the heck the Eternals really are, and I did find my new favorite characters, and I did fall in love with this new world crafted by Chloe Zhao. Many of you listening likely heard my first impressions episode, as I previously referenced, as well as the follow-up, Ranking the Eternals, And I do especially recommend the latter as a companion piece to this episode that you're listening to right now if you haven't heard it, because I will say that the exercise of ranking the 10 Eternals characters in order of how much their character resonated with me definitely helped me to really dig into what works well about the movie and the themes and so on. So before we get into our main discussion here today, just a quick bit of historical context. Eternals, directed by Chloe Zhao, written by Chloe Zhao, Patrick Burley, Ryan Furpo and Kaz Furpo was officially released exclusively in movie theaters on November 5th, 2021 to solid box office numbers, but mixed to negative critical reception. And in fact, earning the title of the worst rated MCU movie by Rotten Tomato standards. On January 12th, 2022, Eternals came to Disney Plus and broke another record by having the biggest debut on that streaming service for the MCU, 2 million US households within the first five days. So I'm left wondering what this means for the MCU moving forward. Are we going to see more auteur directors and big swings? Or are Feige and company going to retreat into the tried and true? And I, for one, am hoping for the former because I love this movie. I find the characters compelling. The aesthetics are gorgeous and fit the mood of the story. And I'm so drawn in by this movie, by this story that is so much about humanity, even though it's not actually about humans. So I will say, I urge you, if you have watched this once and you felt so-so about it, or you felt like, eh, it's not really what I wanted it to be, please watch it again. If you have the time, I do think that it is something that, like Daniel and I, if it captured you the first time, it's only going to 
enhance your experience and, and who wouldn't want to spend some more time in this world if you enjoyed it the first time around. But if you were kind of lukewarm on it, I, I do think this is the type of movie. I think this is a movie that will, I think it will maybe improve for you upon rewatch. And I could be wrong and you can correct me if I'm wrong and if, if you've seen it multiple times and you just don't like it. But I would, I would love to hear from listeners to hear your take on that. What do you think, Daniel? Is this a movie that is about humanity, even though it's not actually about humans? I, I mean, yes. Um, but you know, in, in, in its own unique way, um, it is, it is, a it is about probably what makes human beings unique among, you know, the things that we encounter in our, in, in our world, mm. right? Like you've got all kinds of creatures and things and what makes human beings quite unique is really, I think part of the driving theme of this movie. Um, that's all you'll get me to say now. <laughs> <laughs> so in Eternals, there was an idea about identity and about purpose. I think that this movie, this movie is about characters who aren't supposed to have an identity. They're defined by their work, their mission, their role, the purpose that Arisham has chosen for them. So in this film, in forging their own purpose, their own purposes as individuals, they forge their own identities. And in forging those individual identities, they also then come into their own purpose. What do you think about that, Daniel? What are some of the other big ideas here in this movie? I mean, stop. You're right there. I mean, you you're on it, right? Like it is the, the, the perennial question. Why are we here? Yeah. Who are we and why are we here? This identity and purpose. And those are, those are the distinctive questions for human beings. There are plenty of people out there who think they're meaningless questions. Um, but you know, every culture tr tries to answer these questions, um, in, in different ways. And what I find so fascinating about this movie is you have 10 characters who all go on their own unique journeys to answering this question. Yeah. Um, and they are a family. And so these, these purposes are, you know, running into each other and, and at odds or aligned or whatever. But you see, you see that in their own uniqueness, each one's, each one is, is, to, to kind of go into it, I feel like the, the hinge point of this movie is is at like the 42 minute mark when Ajak um, tells them at, at the Aztec temple after Druig has has left mm -hmm. um, because he's he's quitting. Ajak says, go out, not as soldiers, not with the purpose you've been given. Find your own purpose. And I wanted to ask you, how successful were they? Because I feel like um, and you don't even need to answer that directly. Like, oh, he was more successful. But just like in it, just exploring that question yeah. for all of these characters is the point of the movie. I, th I honestly, I think is the point of the movie to, to be able to, to really unpack that. Because at the very beginning of the movie, you have these characters like birthed and they are fully formed with their mission. And they know exactly what to do and how, and they work together with their, with their skills. Right. It's just mm -hmm. like, they go in, I mean, they're, they're robots. <laughs> so, yeah. so like they just go in and it's, it's, it's without question, 
uh, it's it is their purpose and they are their their essence is who they are it's 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 all unique and tied up together by by the time you get to um when all of the deviants are dead at the very moment that their purpose is over and you've already got one eternal who's so upset about what they've been doing yeah um with druig um and that's that's kind of my tip to you tara i am i appreciate him so much more now i remember when i talked to you a while back um about you know who who's your favorite and i i said druig i did not he did not resonate well with me okay i'm so much more appreciative of 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 his character now um and so he's now gone and so they're already fractured and then ajak turns this over this question over to them this is part of the reason why I think the, the movies it's not its message, but what it's trying to do is very direct is like, find your own purpose. Yeah. And then, and then, so what I did was I made a list of all of them and I tried to articulate what, what did they do? Yeah. You know? I love that. And it, and it, it, it kind of shows you in a sense, like, like some of them, you, like all people, there are elements that that don't change, and then there are elements that you do change or that you self-create. You know that that you make you make your own. Um, but yeah, so that's that was a little that was a thought exercise. I think this sounds like a great idea. I think that this will be a way to speak to these themes of identity and purpose on a deeper, more specific level. If we go character by character, and mm. uh, who do you want to start with? I literally start at the top and not all of them are successful. So I'm like Ajak is the first one that I listed. Um, and you know, she lives in South Dakota and I, I kind of think she saw herself as being like the maternal figure as her purpose, Sure, but also questioning their mission and coming to a decision to thwart Arashem's plan, you know, and unfortunately she's sacrificed, you know, she, 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 you know, her, and her death kind of, um, spurs on the, the, the story. So, um, her, hers is truncated because we right. don't get very much of her. Right. Yeah. We get a line from Sprite at one point where she says, you know, Ajax, Ajax, the one who always took care of us or, or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie definitely mm-hmm. casts her in that role of the, of the caregiver here. But I mean, in in, a, in with clarity though, she came to a a decision, yeah, that was that that was new and in in full appreciation of the creatures that they were tasked with, with um, with uh, shepherding. Yeah. I wouldn't even say that's not even fair because it, it's like they 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 are they are not humanity's protectors. They are tools for these very powerful beings to create energy factories <laughs> so that they could give birth to new, uh, new giant superpower beings. So, um, her, her, her like shift is, is, is quite evident because I also think one of the good uh, examples of her as a maternal figure is, um, or just or a parental figure is, um, was at, uh, Cersei and Icarus's wedding. She is like, openly sobbing yeah. or crying like it, happy tears i great example. it struck me like on, on the second watch i was like whoa she is super emoting so um you know those are laughing and stuff and she's just like super emoting so that's what connected me with that yeah let's jump to oh man who do i want to okay. talk about next can we talk about cersei yeah 
Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Cersei because she's the one to me who is the most connected to humanity. She's the one who seems Mm -hmm. most human. We see her connection to humanity uh, develop really early on when they're in Babylon. And she seems to take a a genuine interest in the people there, in their culture, their foods, their language. And even in the modern day, we see all of these scenes where she's playing with her iPhone and, you know, using Snapchat filters or whatever. And she has this relationship, this romantic relationship with the human man, Dane, who we know Mm -hmm. also has a bit of a, of a more, let's say exciting background than, than we know at first, but she, to me, that's what her, well, frankly, her purpose that she is called to in this film is that she's called to leadership. And I spoke about this on my previous episode, how much I love that story, that she's this kind of quiet leader who doesn't go searching for that opportunity to lead, but it it comes upon her. And she certainly fulfills a purpose here in stopping the emergence. But I see her story and her identity as being very tied to her love and connection to humanity. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, hers, her, in my list, you know, hers was very simple. I, I feel like some characters, it's very simple, very direct, you know, was, was this character successful in meeting Ajax's challenge or charge? You know, go make out, go find your own purpose. Yeah. Cersei, without a doubt. Yes. She found Dane. She is a teacher. She clearly knew Charles Darwin. I mean, she was like in yeah. it and and she is like a part of this. Um, and then at the end, Dane again, she's right back there. You know, it's like, it's like she, she, her purpose was the, from the very first moment when she saw the earth. She looks at Icarus and she says, it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's like, it was from the very, very beginning she was in it. And so um, it wasn't hard for her, I guess. She was my favorite character. When you first asked me like, who's my favorite character? She was my favorite character. And And that has has since changed. Oh, yours has changed. Okay. So Druig (laughs) is still my favorite character. I guess we're also Mm -hmm. showing our hand a little bit because we're going to talk favorite characters later, but we may as well talk about it now as we get to them. So I I appreciate that Cersei is yours because over time, she has definitely become like my other favorite character to Druig. I mean, there's a few of them here who I really, really love, but each time I watch I was not going to reveal it, but- you know, oh, oh that's to, true. Because you just said it changed. No, don't reveal it yet. Don't reveal yours yet. Um, people have heard mine already, so yeah. <laughs> so we'll keep yours. Uh, we'll keep people guessing. But um, yeah, no, I, I one of the comments you just made that I really appreciated because I hadn't fully connected is the fact that she is a teacher of kids, and obviously mm-hmm. you and I relate to that. And I think that how fitting for her character to. Yeah take that role on. And, and even in her conversation with Dane, like there's something to when he's asking, Hey, so if the deviants are gone, like, why are you still here? And yeah. she's very much just kind of like, oh, I don't know well, they're going to tell us we can go home whenever we can. And she spent her time making the most of it and helping yeah. other and people. She even knows now there is no home. I mean, that's, that's a big, yeah. that's a big, big, that's a big moment for me in the in movies. It's like, like their whole purpose for being there was, was a lie. It was, was a, not a lie, but just like, it was, it was very utilitarian Yes. and they're tools and that's it. And what do you, what happens when your tools are self-aware and then they're mm. done with their function, you know, <laughs> and you don't destroy them. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of fascinating. So, um, so another, another, um, and I, I don't mean to say short, like we could talk forever on these, but on a kind of different, different, um, side is Sprite. Mm-hmm. who um up until the very end i would say did not um 
find her purpose. Like she, I, I feel like she was, prof- she's a profoundly sad character. Just yes. I, I'm filled with melancholy when I think about her. Yes. Um, and even in some of the articles are reading just highlight how kind of bizarre that aspect of the story was, but, but I, I mean, I'll roll with it. Like you've got this ancient being in the body of a child um, who's in love with, you know, Superman basically. Yeah. Um, so, so I just, I, I, when I made this list, it was halfway through the movie. So I wrote, she, she didn't really, and she's just sad and lonely. She even says Ajax sent her to, to Cersei because she realized she was lonely, right. you know, and, 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 or we were both lonely. Um, but, but then at the end, you know, Pinocchio, you know, at the end she <laughs> gets her, she, she gets her wish. She's a real boy or girl. Um, she's a real girl. So, um, so even in the, in the end, she, she gets that, but it wasn't on her, her own doing it. She had to, it was a hope still sad. <laughs> oh, it's incredibly sad. It's incredibly sad. It's such a compelling story. And and she's one of the characters who didn't resonate with me as much mm-hmm. on a personal level, but there's something, there's something to that story that I really appreciate that they went there and they went to that kind of weird, dark place of mm-hmm. examining a little bit, you know, they didn't fully get into it because she's one of 10 11, you know, main characters here being introduced into this world. But what would that be like to feel yeah. so, so trapped in that way? And I, I really appreciate that they, that they went there a bit. I'd like to, if you don't mind, transition from Sprite to Kingo, because Please. I appreciate how Kingo, you know, our first time seeing him in the modern day is that Bollywood number. More on that in a little bit. But he certainly has that that's the the scene that we get right after Ajax says those words. Yes. Right? Yes. And so yeah. very much signaling to us this is what this guy has done with his his freedom, with his agency. And he's made that he's made that transition into becoming a, a movie star and he speaks He's embraced it. Oh fully. yeah. <laughs> he's fully embraced it, which is ironic because his position at the end is I believe in Arisham's mission. Yeah. I, I support Icarus, but I want to fight you, um, which is in itself a kind of choice. But 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 yes, art, music, celebrity, honors, and, and uh, he he's fascinating. He's very, he's fascinating. Yeah. And I appreciate how he speaks to Sprite and says, hey, it's because of your influence, your storytelling, that I was interested yeah. in movies. And so that, again, was not necessarily a purpose that Sprite was looking to intentionally cultivate, at least it doesn't seem so, mm-hmm. but it is mm-hmm. an impact that she has had on the world. It's an impact that she's had on, on her friend, on this fellow eternal Kingo. I also appreciate yeah. about Kingo how much he does admire his fellow Eternals, right? He has yeah. this feeling of gratitude to Sprite, and he also has a real feeling of admiration toward Icarus. He is making his movie based on Icarus. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And he tells Icarus at the end, you know, I, I will follow you as I always have. I think that you're absolutely right that there's something so compelling about the fact that here is a superhero movie in which one of our marquee heroes, Kamal Nanjiani, is a very likable, well-known actor who people were looking forward to seeing in this movie. Ironically, he he went all in and got super ripped in preparation for this movie. <laughs> uh, perhaps yeah. you know, like his like his character fully went into into that celebrity mode and embraced that world. 
But he, in the end, is not standing alongside our other heroes fighting the big battle mm-hmm. at the end. And I think that that is something really new for the MCU. Yeah. Let's talk about Druig. Yeah. He left before she made the charge, right? Like he left, he said, we're just like the soldiers down there, pawns to their leaders, blinded by loyalty. So he he kind of, uh, th- there's, a, there's a contradiction in their mission where they are, they're called to help, but not really help. Mm-hmm. And it's all in service to actually get them to fight more and multiply more and not live in balance or in peace, but actually through modes that engage their creativity. Um, and the most efficient way that they kind of see is through violence and, and conflict and Druig kind of picks up on that early and he says, you know, we're just soldiers. We're, we're just like the soldiers in there. We're pawns of the leaders, blinded by loyalty. And he, he abandons them. I said, he, he sort of, he sort of does in his mind controlly kind of way, like makes his, no, he absolutely does. He makes his kind of his utopia, right. Um, yep. among the, among the people. Um, but at the same time, he's, he's your, he's your favorite, um, I said, I had a question for you. He said, okay, at the scene where Druid finally lets go of the people he's been caring for for 20 generations, um, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like he's controlling them all the time. Wouldn't they be a bit resentful that after all this time, you can't just let them go without a thought? Like, we're talking about generations of people under his control. Wouldn't they consider them a god, assuming they don't hate his guts? like Wanda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm digging too deep into this, but um, maybe he had a more complicated relationships with them, but yeah, I just. <laughs> no, I hear you. I don't think it's fully explored and there are definitely shades of Wanda here. What I like so much about Druig and this story is that he sort of similar to the example with Kingo and how he's not there for the big battle at the end. You see Druig do things that we don't necessarily, we don't typically see our superheroes do. He makes decisions Mm -hmm. that superheroes don't necessarily make. He does some questionable things, like, for example, take an entire village under his control, (laughs) under his mind Mm -hmm. control, and create a Mm -hmm. utopia. But the dark side of utopia is dystopia. If people don't have free will, if they didn't choose it themselves... Is that really a utopia? So despite the fact that he takes these actions that we wouldn't necessarily agree with, he has a consistent moral compass. And I appreciate that this movie is willing to embrace those shades of gray. All 10 of these Eternals have consistent moral compasses, even though they Mm -hmm. do things like stab each other in the back, sometimes literally, Sprite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh gosh, so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then a- oh, after she does that, she she gets what she wants. The the narrative yeah. still rewards her. She stabbed yeah. our arguably our main protagonist, Cersei, in the back. Mm-hmm. And Cersei at mm-hmm. the end still rewards her with what she wants because this movie is not interested, I don't think, in typical hero villain dichotomies yeah. or punishing people. It's you know, mm-hmm. Druig in another film might be a villain, but he's not yeah. here. And I think that's what's so interesting about him. And I think it's interesting how he speaks to the weight that it would have on him having the powers that he has, but not feeling as if he can intervene to stop 
all of this pain and suffering. Because he's not he supposed sees. to. Yeah. Because he's not, he's, it's not, you're not allowed to. It's not your mission. Exactly. Um, as you were talking, I, I was thinking, like, part of the reason why I have this deeper appreciation of Druig is he's, what he does is so human. He, he storms out because he's angry and he forms this community in the last place, like, they were all together. Yeah. Right. Like, the, the last place they were all together, almost like he's holding on to something. And then, but he's also very, he's very, clear when he knows when he sees the truth he names it immediately and he says my you know when when Cersei when they come back and find him and they're talking to him in that weird meeting house um I don't know if it's a church or not but he he says my entire existence is a lie yeah he's very he's very very much like the it's one of the things that I I appreciated about um one of the articles that that I read um that the characters are with one important exception, the characters are very direct in their, in, in their, there's, there's very little subterfuge. It's just like, they say what they mean. Um, and I would hope that after thousands of years, they would just like get to the point, you know? Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but yeah, he, he just, he just, my entire existence is a lie. It's like, it would take people years to come to that realization after hearing that kind of knowledge, you know, like, so, um, so Yeah. I, uh, I have a deeper appreciation for him. And then, you know, to, to kind of cap it, like at the end of the story, he is, he is fully come around, wants to help, um, is clearly in love with Makari and, and goes on their mission with Thena mm -hmm. to, to help liberate more Eternals. So, so he, you know, he's, he's made a, a transformation and not, it's not a complete 180 or anything. Cause he was already kind of on that path. Um, it's just, he, he has, he's found a purpose. Yeah. I completely agree. Who have we yet to talk about? Well, Thena. We there's haven't five, spoken about Thena there's yet. There's five more, yeah. Yeah, but but Thena and Gilgamesh go together. Okay. So like, you know, because they they Gilgamesh takes care of Thena and then he sacrifices himself for her. So that's like very much his purpose. It's it's very, very clear and direct. Yes. Um, he's also a brilliant chef. Um, and then, you know, Thena, um, is is living with Gilgamesh trying to hold on to to who she is. Um she's so wounded, you know, it's it's a, it's just a matter of of holding on to herself. Um and then at the end, you know, she she seeks revenge and 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 realizes it. And then, you know, she's a warrior, so she she then she also decides to go and help more Eternals with Makari and, and Druig. So um, they're a little less complicated, I think. I mean, I'm sure we could say more to complicate them, but they're a little less complicated. I don't know what 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 you think. Yeah, no, very much so. I love the relationship between these two characters. And I do love this, you know, thinking about identity. They've all been created for this same mission. And the only thing that really differentiates them, probably in the eyes of Arishim, when Arishim creates them, is that they have these different powers. And Gilgamesh's power, right? And and the powers translate to roles, to job specialization within mm -hmm. this particular mission. And Gilgamesh's role and therefore identity on the outset, what he looks like, you know, in the McDonald's toy and on the poster is the strong guy. He yeah. physically strong. And what I love so much about his story here is that he yeah. finds this purpose in being strong emotionally as well and he's being a, that caretaker being yeah. that caretaker for her exactly mm -hmm. and i also appreciate you know you mentioned that he's a chef and all these things 
we see so much individuality come out. You know, Arashim doesn't mm -hmm. care about individuality, <laughs> right? But they do have these things that make them tick. And that's what makes them seem human, that he has this sense of humor and he brews his beer and he wears his apron and all of these things. So really appreciated that. And Athena, man, you know, there's a, a great scene with her that speaks to the identity question. When she first is experiencing the Mad Weary and Ajak, granted, it's a little bit exposition-y, <laughs> but Ajak explains <laughs> that this is her mind fracturing under the weight of her memories and all I can do is erase you. You can start over. We'll tell Arashim yeah. this whole thing. And and Makari immediately says it won't be Thena anymore because mm -hmm. Makari sees mm -hmm. her as a person, as somebody who she has a relationship with, as somebody who has that individuality. And then you get Kingo in that same scene who he is a little bit more questioning. He's like, well, you know, she could have killed you. We can't let this happen again. And Ajax says, uh, it's not important that you remember or not. Your spirit will remain. You will always be Thena deep inside. And that's so interesting. It's like, Ajax, how, yeah. how are you defining, how are you defining being Thena yeah. if she can't remember her life? She says she wants to remember yeah. her life. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I love a good memory story. And I, I like this about Carol Danvers story and Captain Marvel as well, like mm -hmm. the conflict that creates for a character to lose memory of who they are and then to access it again. And in the case of Thena, you get these beautiful moments in which it seems like she's experiencing madness. It seems like she's losing touch, but those are actually moments of clarity in which she's remembering yeah. the past that she's been through. So it's, it's mm -hmm. really well done. All right. Who do we have left? We have Makari, Fastos, and Icarus. Okay. Let's save Icarus for last. <laughs> okay. let's talk Makari all right so I um she it's funny because um I was this just popped into my head because I was kind of preparing for the next one I was it just popped in my head she's used to waiting around for everyone all the time right yeah so I'm like because I'm like why was she just waiting alone in her like Miss Haversham like why is she weird and like just kind of like aloof and stealing a bunch of stuff, waiting for people to come back so we can go home. She's used to waiting. Like her experience of five th or 7,000 years is amplified by like the 10th power, right? And so it's like, of course she's waiting because that's all she does all the time anyway. So she's like, oh, I'm just... so, so that kind of helped me maybe a little bit because I think she is so on it with, her, her knowledge of like situations. Um, she just knows the truth. Um, maybe it speaks to her, her, like she's, she's very open. Um, it's like, she loves Druig. It's just clear, you know, mm -hmm. um, she's quick to decisions. Uh, it's like, it's like Cersei's like tells him this whole story and she's like, yeah, of course we're going to save humanity. It's just like, no question. Yep. Um, and then she's, she's one of the ones to go off and, and to save liberate more eternal. So, um, you know, I felt like, you know, at first I thought maybe because she's like Mercury, she's, she's light on her feet. She doesn't commit as easily, but then I kind of, I said, no, that's not, that's not right. It's because, she she's she's quicker than them that that's that's kind of where my mind was i don't know what 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 you think yeah i i think that that captures it really well this idea of her waiting which appears so in contrast to the fact that she moves so quickly <laughs> mm -hmm. you know um 
I, I've thought about that scene a little bit when they return to the Domo and she's there and she's dressed in really modern clothing and she's yeah. got all of this stuff around her and it doesn't even seem like she's shocked to see them. She's just kind of like, oh, is it time? And I mean, first of all, she's living her best life. She's gathering all of this knowledge. She's reading a whole <laughs> bunch. She's got DVDs. She makes a reference to DVDs later. And, you know, that sounds pretty nice to me. But she also doesn't seem out of touch. It's not like she has completely yeah. made a hermit of herself. As I said, she's dressed in modern clothing and she certainly uh, knows how to interact with them when they come back and she seems excited to do so. So I, I think that it's intentional then that she's made this decision to just not spend a ton of time with them. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I hope that we see more from her in the future. I think we yeah. will. Audiences have responded to her so positively. And yeah. I hope to see a little bit more of that fleshed out. Obviously, I don't think we're going to see what she did in between all of that time. And I don't think we need to we need to see that. But I think in future stories with her, we're going to get a little bit more about about her her I hope specific so. character. Yeah. Okay, then so there's Fastos, which uh he his his story very clearly, absolutely, yes, his family. Um he even says it, I um, exist for my family, he tells us. Yeah. yeah. But he, he didn't do it till much later. Uh, you know, he, he stuck with Ajax for a while. Um and, and it's interesting how like he stuck so closely with his primary mission in the hope that he could if anything, he's he's quite tragic because he he believed he was doing it for good. And it kind of makes me mad at Ajax for letting him believe it for so long. Yeah. Um, I you know what? TK, one of my questions to you was okay, well, it's it's twofold. Either why didn't Ajax tell everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why didn't she just tell everybody the truth? Or um, why did she just tell Icarus? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do. Um, you know, and, and so, and so I, I didn't know if you wanted to say more about Fastos cause, cause his character is brilliant and I love him. Um, so I want to say, stay with him for a minute before, before going to our, our tragic. Yeah. Listen, I think White man. we <laughs> see Ajax sitting with Fastos, Fastos uh -huh. experiencing so much anguish yeah. after the bombing of Hiroshima. And this is a scene, I've talked about this before, that didn't necessarily work for me very well. I mean, you're right. talking about a moment in human history that is so weighty. And yeah. I I know I'm not alone. I've heard others speak about this too, that that scene, the tone just didn't necessarily fit. Regardless, I see what they're trying to do here. He feels responsible because he's helped humans progress with their technology. To your question- right. You would think that this connection that that she has with him, why isn't he invited into that circle of trust? Um, why aren't any of them invited into that circle of trust other than it's just Icarus? a question? Yeah, it's yeah, a it's, it's a good a one, I think. I, and maybe it's just a a plot conceit, and we go with it. I don't know if I don't know if she saw them. And she saw the relationship that some of them had with humans and with this world, and she didn't think mm -hmm. that they would be able to take that news well. Maybe she saw mm -hmm. that early on, we, and we see that eventually she is not able to go through with the mission. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But but then that that just, it, you know, it leads to the, the next question, why did she just tell, why did she tell Icarus? Because, I mean, that just, 
that raised so much. So, so I, I mean, Icarus is easy to hate and um, just be frustrated. I was frustrated with him. And um, especially upon rewatching, just, just being like, he's such, he's just lying and he's a murderer. And, um, and then I realized he's been lying for 500 years. Yeah. Right. And so like, of course, if what's six more days, right. I mean, what's like, literally what's six more, you've been lying for 500 years, lying to yourself or lying to your, to your it's just like, you, you haven't been honest with those who you are closest with, especially Cersei. You know, once he learned the truth, he left Cersei and, and he more than, I would say he more than any others couldn't find another purpose. He just ran away. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that led me to my, my question, which was basically, you know, I, I kind of asked a variant of it, which is why did Ajax tell Icarus the truth? Why not just let him live out his life with Cersei? Mm. I feel like that's mean. <laughs> and maybe Ajax yeah. didn't realize how, how he would take it, but you know, there's one moment in the text when they're in Babylon and she says to him, your faith in Arisham, your faith in Arisham is true. I can feel it. So maybe we're mm-hmm. meant to feel, maybe we're meant to understand that there is something that even, even at that point in their tenure here on earth and in that part, in that point of their mission, there was something to his dedication to the mission, yeah. his dedication to the purpose that really stood out. So that's why she took him into her confidence. Good point. Good point. Uh, but that's the only that's the only moment the text really gives us. Mm-hmm. What I have found compelling about Icarus and why I like his character more on subsequent viewings, because the first viewing, I really didn't I care for him at all. And then I have begun to like him more. And, and not that I like him, I don't. But I, <laughs> I like Richard Madden's performance. And I like... I do think he's compelling because this is a character who has been so dedicated to this one purpose and betrays it in the end. And he betrays it in the end and he's crying on that scene with Cersei. He cannot kill Cersei. And you can tell, Mm. I mean, at least the way I read it is like, he's a disappointment to himself because he's Mm -hmm. thinking to himself, how did I let this humanity seep in? How did I let this get to me? I right. love her and then and I can't kill yeah. her and I'm going to have to and, go fling myself into the sun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't, I mean, we're, we're take that to mean that he ends his life. Who knows if that's actually what happens um, yeah. because it's the MCU, but like, um, you know, what, one of the, so I, I forgot about this. He, he, he is, he basically makes Thanos argument when he's talking to Cersei Um right before he tells them the truth of what he's done, he goes back to that place. He's trying to tell Cersei, right. And, and he can't get it out. And then he goes back to the place where they, where they, uh, where they made love on the rocks. Yes. So comfortable. And, um, <laughs> and sand and I hate it's sand. a desert. So it must've been freezing. <laughs> yeah. I hate sand. Um, so, you know, just a, a, you know, so romantic. And, um, he says, without the celestials who are unbiased in their destruction, there would be no life. And I was like, that's that's Thanos right there. That's mm-hmm. like, we need balance. We It's for the greater good. That's a Thanos-type argument. Um, and, and, you know, the counterpoint is, seriously, it doesn't have to be zero-sum. She doesn't say that, but it doesn't have to be um, us or them. It, it can be 
we can find a way kind of thing. And that's when he says, I'm in love with you, Cersei. And then they go back and he kind of reveals, reveals it, uh, his, his, uh, the truth. And I think shortly thereafter is when he says specifically to Fastos, but to all of them, I exist for Arishim as do you, right? Like he's, he very much sees himself as fulfilling that, that mission the whole time and until he can't then in the end, which is why I think he's so interesting. He says, I am an eternal. I exist for Arisham as do you Faustus. It's who you are wild. Yeah. 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 There it is. Like, like we said before, this movie really speaks directly to, to these themes. So, so that's, that's my, that's my take right on like this question and it's part of the reason why I think this movie is, is really compelling is because normally when um, when people have approached this question, right, in a philosophical sense, what is the meaning of life? That the, even asking that question implies an answer, right, that is that is universal or generalizable enough to matter for everyone. And what I think is brilliant about Chloe Zhao is that she doesn't even try to answer that in, 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 in any kind of universalistic way. She just yes. answers, she shows 10 individuals trying to answer that question, having, having completed their mission, quote unquote. Now they, they need to go out and find new purposes. You kind of see that all while bound up in this kind of bigger question of, of you know, can we really break from our programming? Can we really break from this higher faith that that we've been that we've been programmed with. So mm-hmm. so that's that that that's a, a that's a I would say a stronger case or trying to trying to draw all this together into into a into a, one single idea would be that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Daniel. I think that was a really mm-hmm. really effective way of channeling our conversation about the characters and about some of the major plot points of this movie to connect it to to that central idea that you identify there is there anything else before we move on related to to the thematic side of the film that you wanted to touch on oh yeah (laughs) no I, i i feel like i would be i would be remiss not to talk about um so so here's so I said at the beginning, like this movie is the most theological, but for most, for most people, I feel like they interpret that to mean, um, religion in a very explicit way. Mm-hmm. So, um, so at the beginning of the movie, you literally have in the beginning, which is what, how the book of Genesis begins. So yeah. it's very much capturing religious myth, but I wanted to ask you, TK, is the myth at the beginning about earth? Or is it the myth told to the Eternals for their so? Is it, is it the myth about, is it an omniscient myth mm. about the Celestials and like this is the truth? Or is this a myth that the Eternals receive? It's it's ambiguous and it it's is. unclear because I'm not, when you watch the beginning, it totally tracks. But then now that you know the truth, there is no Olympia. Right. There's a, there's the World Forge. And so I'm like, who is telling the story then? It's unclear who's written to. Um, yeah, but 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 in any case, it talks about unyielding faith. The the Eternals, their unyielding faith is their um characterizes it. And then and then you have like the 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 brilliant scene uh, on the beach and fighting, and then the real theme of the movie comes when she picks up the knife. Yes. And Pink Floyd's 
uh, is, is the needle drop. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we'll get to that. So good <laughs> later in this, in the, <laughs> in the, but I just wanted to, I kind of wanted to highlight that for me, when, when you talk, when someone like me who studies religion and theology and teaches religion, and theology talks about what makes something religious, there's both an, an in, implicit and explicit component. And I think this movie has both. Um, in ways that you haven't seen in an MCU movie. So explicitly, you've got Kingo and Karun doing a funeral rite and literally praying. That's very explicit. Um, you have at the beginning, the book of Genesis, this movie definitely carries, they they openly use language like we have faith. And so it's very explicit. Mm-hmm. But from a, from a theological standpoint, you're also talking about why am I here? Like that mm-hmm. is the that is the primary theological question. Who am I and why am I here? What is my... What like why am I here? That is a the, that is a theological question. Yeah, and so I see this movie as as engaging that question in a myriad of ways, in in ways that may or may not feel profound to people, but it's I think it's certainly doing it. I think there's ample evidence to show that it's doing it. So that's that's the last thing I I want to say about that. And then the third the third thing because I had three, I actually had three themes, three ideas. So number one was religion and faith. Um, Number two is feelings. <laughs> feelings are everywhere in this movie. Um, and then the last one is beauty or hope, um, which I think is is yeah. the, the kind of implicit underlying theme um, baked into the cinematography. Yes. And their faces are quite beautiful. <laughs> yes. I mean, there is so much here to the fact that these people are carry an otherworldly beauty to them. I think the way that they are costumed are all, is also intentionally reflecting something about their role and how they fit in the world. Let's mm-hmm. maybe explore that a little bit mm-hmm. more when we talk about costumes in a little bit. But I like okay. this idea that they are they are beautiful and they would inspire myth-making among mm. the people who encountered them. They would inspire hope, mm-hmm. to your point, among the people who encountered them. We see that in Babylon. So there's something to dig into there as well. And I want to talk a little bit more about this movie's relationship to myth in a moment as well. In the meantime, let's talk a little bit more about this feelings thing, Daniel. I <laughs> am inclined to agree that there's a lot of feelings in this movie. The Eternals are quite in touch with their feelings. And as you mentioned before, I think they would be after 7,000 years. They've had a lot of time to process. But say a little bit more about that. What makes you say that about feelings in this movie? I mean, like everything they, almost every line is somehow connected to a feeling, unless it's like Arisham talking or whatever. But <laughs> yeah. like, I, Sprite, I envy you. Mm. I love you. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm afraid. It's just everywhere. I mean, I, it wasn't explicit for me until I read this article. So it's, it's by an NPR uh, critic named Glenn Weldon. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'll do your, like, we'll link it. Uh, hopefully you'll link it in the show notes yes, called Eternals, a Marvel movie for everyone who complains about Marvel movies. A little bit clickbaity. Um, and, um, but I promise you, he does like Marvel movies, but this, this, this critic, and I won't read you everything he says, but he he says, um, you know, this movie breaks, uh, the norms of an MCU movie because there's a lot of talking and a lot of feeling, and there's a lot of talking about feelings. Mm -hmm. And this is just another example of why Eternals is weird when compared with other MCU installments. 
And so that got me thinking. And as I, as I rewatched it, I was like, good Lord. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's a, it's a huge part of the movie. And so I I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up. Yeah, I agree. And in that same I don't know what it means. (laughs) In that same article, he talks about a specific feeling that is carried in the movie in its overall mood, which is this feeling of ennui, this feeling of fatigue in a way. And I thought Mm -hmm. that that was really interesting. And as you said, I I hope people will check out the article because while, while the author has some critical comments to say about the MCU at large, as you said, it sounds like overall he is someone who appreciates this world. And he has some really interesting, interesting things to say about Eternals. And there's a line here that I like. He says, so for much of human history, they've attempted to go underground and contented themselves to watch as we puny humans descended into war and greed and hatred and not curbing our dogs or re-racking our dumbbells, etc. Some Eternals became disgusted by humanity's endless cyclical penchant for destructions. Others admired our resourcefulness. All of them, however, grew weary of their mission and of us and of each other. And I think mm-hmm. that's interesting. There is this feeling of ennui, this feeling of weariness that carries itself during this movie. And that's what I said earlier. It has a bit of a somber tone to it. And Mm -hmm. I agree with you too, though, that underneath all of that, there is this, this optimistic feeling of hope. These people have carried this weariness. These people have found, these people have completed their mission, as you've said, but they have found new purpose, even if that looks different. So I really appreciate that as well. To to your other point as well, I I very much took the opening scroll, which I loved, by the way. I did very much take that to be our signal into this movie is going to comment upon storytelling. This movie is going to comment upon myth-making. And to your point, it's a little bit of a a unreliable narrator thing here too, right? This is the story that is being told. And we're going to see how there might be certain limitations to that. So on that topic of storytelling, myth-making, there are some really interesting intertextual connections here with this film, Eternals. There are connections to be made to Jack Kirby's original run of comics where the characters were originated. And I know you and I have both read some of those issues, which are very, very entertaining and bizarre. (laughs) And we won't spend much time talking about them today, but There are some connections there to be made and some subversions there. There's also connections to be made to Greek and Roman mythology and to other superheroes. This movie references Batman and Superman, and there's something kind of interesting about that. It feels intentional. And as always with the MCU, there are also intertextual connections to other MCU projects. Daniel, let's talk very briefly about Jack Kirby's Eternals comics, because you kind of inspired me to read them. I was curious, don't get me wrong, but you had sent me a couple of images from them and I was just <laughs> really, it's so weird. Yeah. I, I I mean, so there's, there's a lot of text um, and I forgot that about more classical comics. Um, and so you're, there's a lot of reading um, in, in more modern comics. They don't do, they, you'll have whole panels I mean, just think about that whole book, that whole one, one whole book of the Hawkeye run by, by Matt Fraction and David Aha, David Aha was, was sign language, you know? So it's like, right. it's like there, there are, there are way different approaches to, to, um, to storytelling. Now back 
it, with those stories, there's a lot of text. And so you're, you're reading a lot and I'm just often, I'm like, why am I reading this? Um, like what's, what, what's happening and very strange things happen, but the, the, the Eternals, they, they actually, they might act a little bit more like you'd expect these bizarre creatures who don't age, who don't die and who just live. And so, you know, Cersei's character is like a, is like a, she's like a, she throws parties all the time. She just throws parties and she just causes trouble and, and doesn't, doesn't really her, her, the, I would say their moral compasses are, are, are bananas, you know, 100% um, agree. She talks yeah. about, I, I have this frame in front of me. The Greek storytellers never could spell my name. Right. However, I did change those boars into pigs. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so silly so much reading and so many exclamation points mm. so many exclamation points every title of of the <laughs> of each issue and i've only read about five six issues i am gonna read more i find them really entertaining and and the mm. images are are really cool to look at mm. but everything exclamation points all over the place the deviant and ever-changing and destructive failure the yes. human this species bred with true balance of structure and disposition although he was a destroyer the human was capable of building for peace and then you have the eternal he was more a child of the gods than of earth dot 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 he reached for the universe <laughs> another exclamation point <laughs> and it's it is very interesting also to see how the Eternals are are depicted here in the comics from the 70s compared with humans, compared with deviants. I might post this frame that I'm looking at. The Eternal is your very um, Aryan Superman looking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, Icarus is totally. Yep. The the blonde hair. And then your human has, has black hair and a little bit more like Neanderthal type features. And yeah. your deviant yeah. just looks like a, you know, a corrupted Reptile. human. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it is very interesting, and there's clearly not much that was taken from the original Kirby comics and adopted mm -hmm. adapted into Zhao's work here. I also know that Neil Gaiman wrote a run of Eternals much more recently. I have not read any of those, but there's, I've, I've read all of them. You and did. They are. It's funny because because I think in some of the media they they went out of their way to say they were inspired by Jack Kirby's you know, uh, original vision, but I, I do think that there was, there's someone was reading those later comics because okay. some of those ideas made their way in. Um, cool. And, uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a kind of one of the more famous recent stories is a, a sleep, the sleeping celestial. So there's a sleeping celestial buried under earth and it's waking up, okay. you know, which very much is connected. It's very similar to, you know, the, the birthing of the, of the, yeah. And then, and then there's, um, there's a, there's one that centers on Sprite and, and her desire to be human and to okay. grow up. Um, I, I won't say any more than that, but, and they're fresh and, and the game in one is really cool. Um, and then there's a current one now that's, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Um, but, um, but, um, yeah, if you don't have a, a taste for, you've never read those classic comics from the seventies, it's, it's bizarre. It can be very bizarre. Yeah. So, I'm having um, a great time with it though. I really am. And if it, there is one thing that I notice as a through line, it's, you know, clearly Kirby here is inspired in designing these characters by the mythological figures of Cersei and Icarus <laughs> and Athena yeah. and Mer Mercury and so on. And in the text, there's an explanation for how those myths came to be among humanity, which is that the humans 
were perceiving the Eternals and based the myths upon them. And in fact, it's quite heavy handed in the comics and the deviants yeah. speak about it too. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have it in front of me anymore. So this is now me making up my own words, but the deviants saying something like, we are the deviants. We have inspired the demons from hell and the devils of your stories, you know, that kind of thing. And it's really enjoyable. Um, Just we, to remind you again. <laughs> yeah. And we see that in the film as well. And I, I do think that those, those connections are very cool. You know, Dane says really mm -hmm. early on, ah, Icarus, the boy who flew too close to the sun. Like, I know that one. And mm -hmm. Cersei's just like, yeah, Sprite made that story up when we lived in Athens. And it's cool. I like it. I like seeing Sprite telling the epic of Gilgamesh to the people of Babylon who, yeah. you know, in our world go on to write the epic of Gilgamesh. So I think those connections are interesting. And then, of course, because this is the MCU, this is 2022, we also have, so Fastos' son, sees Icarus, who who Fastos calls Isaac, which is a nice nod to the comics, I think, because mm -hmm. Icarus goes by Ike Harris, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is Ike great. Ike Harris. So. Yeah. And, um, and he immediately goes, oh, you're Superman. I saw you on TV, you know, with the eyes and the flying and whatever else. And Gilgamesh makes a reference to Batman. So I, am I making more of it than needs to be made of it? Or do you think there's something intentional here about commenting on how superheroes are kind of our modern day mythological figures in, in a way? Um, I, so my brain I'd need to hear more. Um, when, yeah. when, when you said, so, so like before I came to this conversation, TK, I, my insight was, and it might be wrong, but was that the, the whole myth-making part of this, like, oh, Makari is like inspired Mercury and Icarus, you know, inspired Icarus and Athena is Athena was kind of an afterthought not, not an afterthought. It's kind of like backseat. It's not, a. Mm -hmm. it's not an essential part of the story it's there and it's interesting, but it's not an essential part of the story. Um, maybe you can tease it out a little bit, but, but when, when I brought up the, the opening marquee and you said that this is a comment on myth-making, I, I started to think a little bit more critically about it. Um, but I, I'm just, I guess I would say I'm so taken by the, the primary theme of, of what's my purpose. Yeah. And then, and then how, from the very moment they connect with humans, which is the, the, when the needle drops, uh, with time that becomes the through line of what is my purpose, you know? And, and that, and, and, and I, I, I kind of leave the myth-making behind, I guess I would say. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, totally unless, unless I'm missing the meta meta textual question, which is like, this is another myth, you know, this is, this is who we, we, we externalize our, our, our questions. Um, you know, I guess, I guess a bigger, the one difference I would say is one of the, ca the characters of myth, as opposed to entertainment, um, is, is that myth, myth is telling us something explicitly religious, mm -hmm. um, which it's, a, it's, it functions differently than, than entertainment. Um, and, um, yeah, that's a really good. Point. Maybe that's, the maybe that's different. Maybe that's a, a false distinction. Maybe like, if you rewind the clocks, you know, a couple thousand years to when people were writing these stories, it, it was just entertainment. You know what I mean? And so, and so maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not, I'm not, um, 
I'm making a false distinction. No, I think um, that you're making but, a really compelling point there. I wonder if the movie agrees with you because now I'm thinking about the Kingo scene where he's saying, you know, oh, I loved your storytelling and, and that's what made me get into movies and thinking about the scene in which Sprite is entertaining the people of Babylon with that story, right? And so I wonder- Yeah, that's true. I wonder the extent to which- like on a phil- philosophical level, like <laughs> I, I'm in agreement with you about these things being different, but I wonder the point to like, I do wonder to what extent the movie is making some type of connection. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily like a firm here is a message about this thing, but there's some type yeah, of connection it's, it's inviting there. us to. For sure. Yeah. And I'm interested in exploring more about that. And as you and I have spoken about, and I may have alluded to on the podcast on the podcast that I am going to be submitting a paper to the Pop Culture Association, thanks to Mav over at the Vox Popcast, who encouraged me to do so. And this is what I'm going to dig into a little bit. I'm going to dig into the Eternals and the connections to mythology a little bit more. So you can stay tuned to hear how how that goes, both you, Daniel, <laughs> and, and listeners. I can't wait. All right. So now we're going to transition into our superlative section for Eternals. We have a couple of categories here for which Daniel and I are going to share our chosen favorites. The first is MVP, favorite character. (laughs) And I've already talked about mine. I talked about Druig a number of times on the Ranking the Eternals episode and here today. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Daniel, to talk about not Cersei, but the character (laughs) who took her place as your favorite. Put in your head what you think. And then I'm going to say, and you can tell me whether you thought, because I was trying not to, to, I was trying not to give it away when I was going through my my big own list, but my MVP is Makari. Okay. And um, my, she has become my MVP because of like a lot of the things that I kind of said, but I I softened it, which is she, she is like, she's, she's quick to conscience. It's like, this is the right thing. And she has that line. Um, the truth will set them free. It's just like yeah. she she is there. She's already there all the time. Also, her fight scenes are awesome. Um, they sure and, are. Um, definitely the person I would. And, and like, I love when Faustus is like, go find the emergency. She's just off, you know? And then there's also like a, there's a, there's a, a lightness of spirit to her. Um, like when, like she comes in and she's like, I found it. And they're in the middle of like, Icarus just told them he killed Ajax. And, and it, she's like, what's wrong? You know, it, it's like, um, I love her character. Those and, are all great um, moments. I love, I love her, the, the, the representation that she has in being deaf and being a person of color. And, um, and the, 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 the way that, that challenges me as a viewer, but also learns to appreciate, um, how, how, I receive that those that communication, um, and um, you know, aside from Druig, I feel like um, for her character, I, I wish I had more. You know, mm-hmm. like Agreed. there's there's I said the beginning one of the one of the things that I that I dislike quote about the movie is that um, I wanted more uh, on on certain characters, and she's certainly one. But we we definitely get enough, you know, to to, to be able to um, to be able to figure out who she is and to really experience her. So, so yeah. Yeah, I agree. She's a great choice. And I I do think we're going to see more of her moving forward. Excellent. On the topic of fight scenes, Mm. best action scene. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I would say um, the fight on the beach with Icarus 
at the end. I don't know where you started or where you end it, but (laughs) I felt like, um, again, there's just so much emotion, you know, there's this, there's this interchange between Faustus and Icarus. He says, he has the, the quippiest line, which is is super cheesy. He says, like, I've always wanted to clip your wings. It's probably <laughs> yeah. the the worst line. I don't know. Like, but it's like, it's like they they are they are upset with him, but they are trying to keep him occupied. And then um there's just a lot going on story-wise as well. So, and I love how how they they keep him down. And I I just really like that whole that whole sequence. Um, and the deviant arrives and Thena and, and, and I'm just kind of grouping all of that together. So that, that would, that would be my, oh, and the last thing I want to say about that is, um, this is something that I got from one of the articles that except for one of a few examples, uh, most of this takes place in like beautiful, broad daylight, mm-hmm. sun is rising, sun is setting. Um, and it's, you, I, I don't think a lot of fight scenes happen that way. I feel like they, they either happen indoors or they're at night and, and, you know, it's more conducive to an action movie where people can, you know, like I think of Batman, you know, and it's like, it's like, that's a, that's the darkness is a character in the, in the fight. Right. And this, it's all out in the open. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a testament to Chloe Zhao's um, skills and, and what she chooses to do with the, with the, um, with the landscapes. So that's my favorite. What about yours? I completely agree. And in my notes, I have much the same line of thinking as you do. I I thought about the first Mesopotamia battle. I thought Mm. about the Babylon battle, but I ultimately chose the final fight on the beach. Makari looks Mm. so cool fighting Icarus. It's such a great depiction of a speedster. And to your point, their colors of their costumes pop so much against the sand. And here's, here's a quote from the NPR article that... I felt spoke to this really well. It says, it's easily the most gorgeous MCU film to date. And the stark, lonely beauty of the places she captures, she meaning Chloe Zhao, can't help but color the mood of the film, gently underscoring the loneliness of immortal life and the desire to retreat from the noise of humanity, unquote. Mm. And I thought that that was such a beautiful way of capturing, shout out to to Weldon there, such a beautiful way mm-hmm. of capturing how the landscapes here act as a a reflection for a bit of that feeling that the Eternals have, uh, that they it does capture the mood of the film because they're not fighting in a they're not fighting in Rockefeller Plaza. <laughs> they're not fighting right. on a ship like the Lemurian Star. They're not fighting yeah. on they're not fighting at an airport in Germany, which okay, there weren't other people around there, but that is, <laughs> you know, like they're fighting on this abandoned beach. And it, it's just it that contrast I think is uh, really powerful, and yes. it looks cool. It looks cool as it hell. Looks beautiful. <laughs> All right, you've alluded to it a couple of times. Best use of music here in the film: needle drop or score? Without question, Pink Floyd's "Time." We and, talked about it a little um, bit already uh, yeah. uh, over text. As I was as I was preparing, I um, looked up the lyrics and I was floored um, because it's it it. The, the needle drops as soon as Cersei picks up the knife um, to hand to the child as she trans transmutes it to, to something beautiful. Um, and, and, and that to me signals like what the central dilemma of the movie is, which is uh, captured in 
the the lyrics, especially the beginning, but if you read all the lyrics, I think they're appropriate. But the song starts ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way, kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. And it's like all right there. It's it's, it's just like that's the movie, right? It's like these the these beings are trying to they're in a in a they're in a place of of like they experience an existential crisis. This this person who who is ex- this person who's frittering away their time is having a midlife crisis, basically, right? And 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 um and um what's even what what I love is that that if you follow that song through in the movie, so um the 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 the, the song signals these themes of fatigue, which you brought mm-hmm. up. What is my purpose? Fritter and waste. Uh, right when you see the image of the knife on the big LCD screen advertising the artifact. Mm-hmm. Like, so you, you go from a quick jump from the touching and meaningful moment when Cersei transforms the knife and hands it to the child to its reduction to an object devoid of context and meaning in an advertisement in a museum, which says like, come see old stuff. And then in case you just don't get it, Cersei <laughs> takes a freaking picture of it yeah. with her smartphone, moves through some filters, one can assume because she's about to post it to social media. So it's just like, it, it's, it's almost, um, it's almost like, um, it's almost too much. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, amazing. as I started thinking about it, I'm like, it's a really, 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 I get it. I get it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. This one might be as on the nose as, uh, immigration song in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> right. Um, (laughs) where you look up the lyrics and it's right there yeah this is my pick too and and specifically the first time I saw it it felt as if the score uh there were some beats to the score that felt like they really easily transitioned into those opening notes Mm. of time and I remember Mm -hmm. sitting there and thinking wait is this what like so I you know this is an album I was so familiar. I am so familiar with and listened to so much yeah. in high school. I admitted to you, I had some of these lyrics scrawled in my notebooks, and you know, oh, it, it was something exactly very pretentious. <laughs> but I know the song very well. I would recognize it anywhere. I was like, wait, wait, is this? Is this? And it plays the instrumental bit plays over the Marvel title cards, which that along yeah. that right there, along with the opening scroll, as you already mentioned, are establishing for us like, okay, this is an eerie almost first indication that something is different here and then the lyrics kick in when we hit present day london and you so beautifully described what we see then with the artifact it's it's fantastic it's really up there with some of my favorites here uh in terms of needle drops in the mcu super cool quick honorable mention i do enjoy speaking to cersei's character that she has a lizzo song as her ringtone (laughs) you know like she's just really embraced like the pop culture of the modern day and i appreciate that so good. All right. I also want to talk about costumes a little bit. Which is your favorite costume? So I I had to think about this one because I was I was like all of them. Um, <laughs> but um, so in terms of in terms of um, uh, streetwear, I'm gonna have to go with Makari. Very um, cool. In terms of their their costumes, I like I like I wanted to say Makari, but like Thena's. Athena's um, costume is it's the golden white motif is just, it just pops and Angelina wears it so well. She's, she's like a celebrity among them almost, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, literally she is as an actress, but also like in terms of like Thena is like this warrior 
who like everybody knows on every planet yeah ever she's like Thena you know and 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 like and so like her her costume just um and then in combination with her 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 uh, her weaponry um it all kind of goes together but I'm interested to hear your take on it you know, I'm I'm worried that this isn't going to make for that much of an entertaining <laughs> listen to our <laughs> listeners here because I also have the same pick as you here. And I knew Shoot. we would probably have the same pick for time, even if we had a slight variation on why. But it's the golden white. It's Thena, man. Mm. Like that that headpiece that she wears. It's so to your point, it's so uh, regal almost. And yeah. it just pops so nicely against the backgrounds. But I did want to share here that uh, something that one of the costume designers on the film mentioned, he said, his name is Sheldon Differ. He says, ultimately, Chloe wanted to celebrate the idea that these people are not human and not a superhero in the traditional sense. She wanted something very soft and very body conscious that celebrated each character individually. And I think we see that reflected in in their costumes. I like the different colors, but there was something that I read as well that she didn't want the colors to feel too much like a rainbow of like, here's a bright red and here's a bright, bright blue mm-hmm. and here's the green. Like she very much wanted it to be He's the blue ranger. It. He's the green ranger. Exactly. He's the white ranger. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I think that the attention to the costume design is really cool. And especially how they have those patterns that look almost mechanical in, yeah. in the, the very almost kind of metallic costumes. There's something really, they both feel mechanical and organic in a way so i I really like the design streetwear has got to be cersei's green and blue plaid because it kind of echoes her um her her the colors of her costume but uh that that's her human self there coming through Mm -hmm. all right best Mm -hmm. quote favorite line from the movie um just nothing special it's uh when thena says to cersei um, what Gilgamesh told her, she says she starts it because Cersei's sitting down feeling sorry for herself um, after, you know, Icarus and takes Sprite and goes, they're going to make sure the emergence happens. She says, there's no time for that. Mm-hmm. Indicating that Cersei, there's no time for that. Just sitting. And then Cersei says, why, why did he, ch- why he chose to protect her? I think Thena is trying to unpack for, for Cersei. Why, like, what's, what's the point? Um, and this line gets quoted in the, in the trailer, but it's without context. So it sounds like Fina's talking about humanity. Like when you love something, you protect it is the most natural thing in the world in a, in a general sense. I'm like, Oh, that's cheesy. Mm. But when I heard it the first time here, I was like, Oh, this is so perfect. So she says, Gilgamesh said to her, why do you protect me when you love something, Fina? When you love something, you protect it. It's the most natural thing in the world. You have loved these people since the day we arrived. So there's no one better to lead us now than you. Cersei, get up. So that's my favorite line. So good. So good. I got to go with Druig sucks. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, No, I have a different line. It's not a a surprise though. And we have touched, we have talked about it a little bit already. 
Druig, I've watched humans destroy each other when I could stop it all in a heartbeat. Do you know what that does to someone after centuries? Could our mission have been a mistake? Are we really helping these people build a better world? I'm just like the soldiers down there. Are we just like the soldiers down there, pawns to their leaders, blinded by loyalty, as you mentioned earlier? But especially, I think the line that hits the hardest in that section is that, do you know what that does to someone after centuries? Could our mission have been a mistake? It speaks to the the questions of the film, as as we've already discussed, and uh, Mm -hmm. I love it. All right. So we'll rapid fire here. Three favorite scenes. Give us your three, two, one brief explanation. I'm sure we've touched on a number of them already. Okay. Okay. I'll go first. So um, I did not double up because I wanted to use as many slots as I could. So um, I don't know where the action scene would fit in here. I'm just not going to do that. Um, (laughs) But I did put an order to these. So number three is the, um, the, the scene at night in, um, in the Aztec scene uh, where the family splits up. Um, and Thena has her, her mad weary, um, that, that scene is a crux point. It's actually where I started for, for when we started talking about the movie, this is where I started. So this is my third favorite scene. Um, my second favorite scene is the table scene in Australia, mm-hmm. just as Australia in general, but the, t- the whole table scene where they're all together, mostly all together again, Thena's is looking weird. She's given people weird looks. Cause I think she likes to do that. And, um, you know, Gilgamesh is making fun of Sprite Sprite puts a baby costume on him. Kingo's making comments about the drink. It's just, it's so like, like a family who has long, long, well-tread conversations and jokes and everything. Icarus makes his dumb comment about the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just, I really like that scene. It's, it stands in contrast to a lot of the other stuff, which is very high stakes, very emotional. It's, it's, it's mundane. And I thought it was done very well. It was also shot very well. And then the last number, number one, because you said rapid fire, <laughs> is the opening sequence on the beach. Yeah. Um, it's so dang beautiful. The ship flies in. It introduces all the characters fully formed. They know how to do, they know what to do, how to do it. If you're just paying attention, you learn about almost all of them. Um, and then you close with Time by Pink Floyd. It's, it's, it's uh, easily... That's my favorite scene of the movie, which is crazy because it's the very beginning. So, but it just has all of those elements. It has humanity, yeah. a father and his son. Uh, yeah. The stakes are real. Um, we didn't talk about the deviants much, but like, it seems to capture capture this this very. It's very fast, um, but it's 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 lovely to to watch over and over again. How about you? So effective. If there was another Druig line that was in contest for my favorite line of the film, it's when he says, that makes them us, you know, about the deviants. So yeah. just to call that out there, I, I what mm-hmm. I appreciate about the deviants is that they are the other end of, they are the other side of the coin to the Eternals and they were both created by Arishim. I think that's really interesting, even if we don't get yeah. a ton of that story fleshed out. So I'm not going to double up on any of your moments here. Okay. I tried to to choose. Those are all fantastic. And I'm glad that we have some more to talk about. For my number three, I chose the Nakamura Hero Bollywood number. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned this already, the transition from Ajax saying, go out, find your own purpose. And someday when we see each other again, I hope that you'll, you'll tell me what you found or something to that effect. And then we cut to this. It was really fun. And the singer of the song actually 
spoke about it a little bit. I guess that there was a, some critique to it didn't feel quite Bollywood enough. And she said, it's a Hollywood movie. They wanted something mixed like Hollywood meets Bollywood. The song mm. is about dance my hero. We use that as the phrase throughout the whole song. The production is very, very Bollywood. And the scene is also very vo- Bollywood. You're going to have to watch it to know what I mean. It's a mix and it's incorporating Bollywood sound. It's interesting when both worlds meet together. So this is what she said about the scene. And I, I appreciate that Chloe Zhao is bringing some of this into the MCU. You know, this film, yeah. we didn't really talk about it, but this film features actors from various uh, various walks of life. The word diverse doesn't begin to capture it. It's it's not yeah. simply in in race or ethnicity. It's in, you know, their, their countries of origin. It's in their experience as actors. As you said, you have Angelina Jolie. <laughs> and then you have lesser known uh, actors like Leah McHugh. And um, yeah. it, it's it's... I like how this scene touches on some of that international feel of the movie. Yeah. It's so fitting for Kingo's character. We talked about this a little bit, that this is the purpose he has forged. It speaks to the larger theme of storytelling and legend making. Here he is taking inspiration from Sprite. He's directing a film about Icarus. He's dressed as Icarus. <laughs> and the, the dance number, the song number is really fun. You get some good characterization for Kingo. And this is the beginning of the friends from college bit, which is a fantastic. It makes me laugh so much. The friends from college uh, (laughs) recurring bit here in this movie. And the scene is also the introduction of Karun, who we didn't talk about, but he... We haven't mentioned yet. (laughs) Yeah, he's wonderful here. So that's the third one that I... That's the number three that I I wanted to make sure we talked about that scene. Number two, I just put... Babylon, <laughs> not the fight, but the stuff that comes after the fight specifically. Yeah. Because as you yeah. say, that opening scene tells us so much about who each of these characters are, what their powers are, what their roles are, and some of that kind of interplay between them. And then we get a lot of character development through dialogue and interaction in Babylon. The Druig and Makari banter, which I love so much, where she's like, yeah. I won't tell if you don't tell, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you're making these guys over here hit themselves, and and he's like, ceiling's also bad, you know? Um, great. There's that charge interaction between Thena and Icarus, which I think is really interesting yeah. once you go back to it after knowing, you know, what Icarus ends up doing. And uh, there's, there's some real pain and tragedy there behind Thena's eyes, even mm-hmm. before the whole Mad Weary mm-hmm. bit. This is where Ajax sees Icarus's faith in Arishim. Cersei's running late to everything. We see how much she loves people. Sprite telling the Epic of Gilgamesh. We've touched on all these things, but this all kind of takes place in that Babylon bit. So I called that one scene. Maybe that's cheating, but <laughs> oh <laughs> no, segment. that's like that's that's the name of the game. Yeah, and then number one, we don't need to talk about it too much anymore. The Tenochtitlan scene. You see the Spanish conquistadors attacking the Aztecs. Druig, you know, this isn't war, it's genocide. And then as you say, the the mad weary and the the fracturing of the team here leading to that moment that we've talked about a few times where they go their separate ways. So I counted that as my uh as my number one. But honorable Lovely. mentions, we didn't even talk about, you know, there's other scenes in this movie. I love Cersei and Dane hanging out in London. Oh, totally. <laughs> that, all that's going to pay off when we get to see Oh, him man, so good. Projects. I loved seeing Fasto's family life. You know, you mentioned earlier the the representation of uh, Lauren Ridloff as, as Makari and mm-hmm. to see uh, Brian Tyree Henry here playing a gay superhero is really has, has a huge impact on a lot of people. And to see his family yep. was really lovely. 
the scene on the airplane I enjoy and when oh, Cersei yeah. meets Arish and finds out the truth. There, there's a lot of really good stuff in this movie. I find it to be really rewatchable. Like scene to scene, I'm like, ooh, it's this part. Ooh, I like this part too. <laughs> so Totally. All right. Before we wrap up here tonight, I know there's things we missed, but <laughs> is there anything that you want to make sure that we touch on before we go? It's funny. So like, I just want to call back to like, so like, you know, there is, there is a love scene in this movie. Yes, there is. And it's, it's, it's after that scene, the Babylon scene. And it just, I just want to highlight it's all about feelings. What does Ajax say to Cersei? Go tell or, Icarus, go tell Cersei how you feel. Yeah, you're absolutely And right. then they go, and then they go out and they, they, they kiss and it's very simple scene. It's not gratuitous. But as I said to you before, there are quite beautiful people right in my face, but I'm constantly distracted by the even more beautiful landscapes. Yeah. And I wrote here on my notes, Zhao, you're a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> because she just, she just, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. And um, I know it's important. There's the, the scene at the beginning where, um, where um, Icarus flies down in the sun uh, is blinding you. And then he comes into frame and he blocks the sun. Yes. It, it happens frequently. And I know that I don't have the, the lens. I don't have the critical lens to be able to unpack that. I don't have the language for it. And so I I'm, I'm waiting for someone to do that because they'll do it. It's there. Um, and, and, and I can't wait because, um, because I know it's, it's going to, to yield much fruit for me. I think that, um, that there's, there's a lot of story going on that that we implicitly are absorbing, but we just we I'm still struggling to kind of bring it out. Yeah. And to that point, I think that's a, a nice place to wrap up because we had an awesome conversation about this movie here tonight. And I think we can have more conversations about this movie moving forward. <laughs> There's a lot in here. I, for one, am very excited to see where we're going to see these characters next. You know, one thing that we didn't get into too much is how this movie makes connections to other projects in the MCU. And something that's so wonderful about this movie is that in a way it can stand alone. Certainly there is the, the historical context of Thanos's snap, which is important. Uh, But one of the friends that I went with had not seen any other MCU movie other than Iron Man. And I didn't tell her about Thanos or Endgame or anything like that before we went in. And she really enjoyed the film. She got a lot out of it. She appreciated the messages of it. She appreciated what it looked like. And there's enough in the movie that kind of, okay, there was this snap thing that happened. There was a Thanos and there was a population decrease Mm -hmm. and increase. Um, That being said, you know, I do appreciate the backdrop of this film. Like you see the billboard that there's an, there's an advertisement that mentioned something about the GRC and there's an acknowledgement that, Thanos' snap would be part of the everyday conversation of of the world. Um, But it also leads to some questions like, are we going to see future films in the MCU reference the happenings of the Mm -hmm. emergence? We have this Mm -hmm. half, not even half formed celestial rock thing (laughs) in the middle of the ocean. Uh, When are we going to see that next? So I'm looking forward to it. And I'm certainly looking forward to having more conversations with you, Daniel, about this movie and, and others in the future. But I I will say like when I, I went to see this movie with a friend of mine, who's deep, deep into comics lore um, loves, loves um, his favorite um, uh, Marvel um, property is fantastic four. 
And okay. he was so excited when he came out of this movie because he's like, we, we've we had Guardians, but this is really um, an entree into the cosmic, you know, we, we have Thor and we have, um, we have Guardians, but everything's been mostly rooted in earth and and this you get the the celestials um and this this even more bringing into the cosmic realm and we know those projects are on the horizon so um he was very excited about that and he said it's his, it's his favorite part of the of the marvel universe and we're getting secret wars you know yeah. we're, we're getting these things that are that are that are um going to to feel new and so um that's kind of what i'm excited about daniel as always, thank you so much for sharing your your thoughtfulness and your insights here today on the podcast. And I'm sure that listeners are going to hear more of you both on this show and on MCU Need to Know, where you frequently guest in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's always a pleasure. And um, I don't have anything scheduled now, but I'm sure something will pop up. Definitely. If you enjoyed this conversation about Eternals, you can follow the podcast at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can hear more from Daniel on previous episodes of this podcast, as well as MCU Need to Know, and I'm sure upcoming episodes as well. Artwork by Brooke Pender, who you can follow on Instagram at D-E-L-T-A dot M-U-S-H. And music by Demeter Salvia, who you can find on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. Next week, I will finally be releasing my top 20 films of 2021 episode. And after that, stay tuned for some discussion of the Moon Knight trailer and the first episode of my new Character Spotlight series.